about scriptural precepts with regards to the economy. And, um, you know, I'm not going to read you the whole article. It was about a half a page on the front page, and then it was a full page on the inside. And uh, it was interesting because of all the people, in fact, from what I understand, I found this out later, that after the message was completed, of course, you know, Seacoast is a mega church, lots of people. There was a standing ovation that took place with regards to that message. I posted again on Facebook when I heard this, and then I heard that Seacoast was getting a little heat uh, because there were some people that thought that they were mixing politics and the pulpit. I said, you go Greg Surratt. I mean, if there was ever a time that we need to support pastors and churches that want to apply the Bible to the culture, now is the time. Jesus touches every fabric of existence, every aspect of our life. But what interested me was, uh, as I started reading this particular article, over here in the gray area, if you can see off to the side, if you didn't read it, the gray area is interesting off to the side, because it begins to make mention of certain things regarding uh, the separation of church and state. I was particularly interested as to the interpretation that they brought to Jefferson's letter to the Danbury Baptists in 1801 with regards to the separation of church and state, treating, treating that letter as if it were a part of the Constitution. I know Jefferson had his ideas about church and state, but the bottom line of our founding fathers was simply this. The First Amendment was given to us Not to keep God out of the public square, but to keep government out of our churches. All right? And the reason, listen to me, the reason it was the First Amendment, and you have to understand the Christian worldview that existed at the time of the writing of the Constitution, was because our founders understood clearly that government does not stand over God. You're following me. All right? And and the church, as God's instrument in the earth, should have... Indeed, separate status. The government has no business sticking its fingers into the life of God's people as they form the church together. This is God's instrument in the earth. And so it was interesting just reading these things. And then, of course, down here at the bottom, they were going to give us one more time the 501c3 tax law, which tells us under penalties of the government... That if we find ourselves somehow or another nebulously touching the political arena, that we could find our tax-exempt status revoked. Have mercy. We could have our tax-exempt status revoked. And that uh, we need to be exceedingly careful we do not cross the line. And the article was written in such a way, I found it amusing was that uh, the writer, and I want to tell you because I wrote, I wrote him a letter and he wrote me back, an email, and he wrote me back. But, but um, it was interesting that, he, that, 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 that the take of the, the article was that Representative Scott probably didn't cross the line. However, churches need to be careful that they don't do such horrific things as talk about how the Bible relates to debt, how the Bible relates to the foreigner and the immigrant, how the Bible speaks about um, um, abortion and how you define marriage and all of these areas. Oh, God forbid. We, let, let me tell you, there's the, anything and everything's political. You understand in the day we're living in. 
To say you can't talk about political things means, I guess we just don't talk about anything, at least nothing of any importance. Anyway, interesting article. That in and of itself, I was going to let go, even though my blood pressure went up. But today, in our local and state section, from a guy by the name of Brian Hicks, I'm mentioning names. This was, this was Adam Parker, by the way. And, and Adam was the one I was visiting with today. But Brian, Brian, Brian hasn't written me back yet, though I wrote him. He has not written me back yet. But Brian basically said, because as he was picking up on Sunday's article, basically he said that um, as far as he was concerned, I'll just get to the bottom, uh, that if the church wants to do this as far as he was concerned, as you see right there, tax them. Just go ahead and tax them. Because the church has no business crossing that particular line. I can't read to you the whole letter that I wrote. I, I did get, and just to be fair... I got an incredibly gracious response from Adam Parker, who was the reporter on the original article. And we had a great little conversation back and forth. And uh, so I want to be fair with regards to that. Uh, he was gracious in what I had to say. And, and, and we had an interesting discussion. And I, and I don't know where that ultimately will, will lead to, but I felt like when we walked out of it, there may have been a relationship that may start that may give me some opportunity to influence uh, in that area. Now, again, Brian Hicks hasn't called me yet. And, and, I, and, and whether he does or not really was of no concern to me. I also sent it to Frank Wooten, uh, by the way, because I figured, why not just put it, why don't you just put my letter in the paper and let's just hear the whole story. Now, we'll see if that comes to pass or not. Um, so I'm not going to read you the whole thing because most of you have heard me say these things in one form or fashion or another. So I won't bore you with the, the content of the letter. I guess if you're interested in that, um, I can get it to you somehow, some way. Uh, but, but all of you know, once you heard it, you'd say, yep, that's Pastor Baird. Yeah, that, that's him, all right. But all of this, it's just so interesting to me how all of this is bringing context to the Sunday that's coming up. They have no idea. They had no idea that October the 2nd was designated uh, as Pulpit Freedom Sunday. And so tonight, I want to set the tone for just a couple of things that I'm going to be speaking about on Sunday. And the reason I'm doing this is because once we get here Sunday, I'm not going to set any tone. I mean, we're going to get into the message, and it's just, it's just going to be spoken. And, but this way, if you're here, or their others are here, or they could even go to the website and listen on iTunes, they can understand a little bit as to what uh, pastors are attempting to do, again, here within our nation. Uh, again, this Sunday is called Pulpit Freedom Sunday. Approximately three years ago, uh, there was a group that's called the Alliance Defense Fund. The Alliance Defense Fund is a nonprofit organization of Christian lawyers, business people, journalists, and pastors. There's actually four different groups of people that participate in the Alliance Defense Fund, although, although the greatest participants are lawyers. There's approximately 2,500 Christian attorneys uh, in the Alliance Defense Fund that are stationed all over America. Um, this uh, this alliance was started uh, by Bill Bright, some of you know his name from Campus Crusade, James Dobson, and the late D. James Kennedy. They wanted to form an organization of Christian attorneys that would become the intellectual firepower that not just win the megachurches, because it's interesting that the government never goes after the megachurches by and large because they have the resources with which to go to court 
and to contend with anything that might get thrown at them. The problem is when you get to churches our size that we don't have tens of thousands or hundreds of thousands of dollars in order to secure attorneys with which to challenge things that may come our way from a hostile government. And so the Alliance Defense Fund is set up in order that particularly our size church and churches like ours have access to legal advice and help that can go against the onslaught of hostile uh, issues with regards to First Amendment freedoms or the freedom of religion. Um, It is headed by a guy by the name of Alan Sears. Alan was actually, if you recall, back in the Reagan era when he had the committee on pornography, Alan Sears was the one that actually headed up that particular committee along with James Dobson and others, uh, Ed Meese and others who were a part of that particular uh, uh, administration. So, So they specialize, though, in these First Amendment issues and keeping our freedoms as Christians uh, when they are directly challenged. And the Pulpit Initiative or Pulpit Freedom Sunday has to deal with the fear many pastors have about taking on perceived political issues from their pulpits. Now, you know, when Legacy started, you just got me. And I realize our congregation is a little bit different. Because, you know, pastors here to stay. Now, you know, there's some churches out there that pastors come and go and there's a lot of pressure on them. So, so they have to navigate the political landscape within their own churches. That doesn't work that way here at Legacy. Uh, <laughs> if, you, if, if you don't like what you hear, you know, that's why there's the door out front. I mean, it's just, I mean, that's how you vote. I mean, I want you to stay. I, I love you being here. But ultimately, it ain't changing the message. So... So, but many, many churches face that perceived fear of stepping into an area that uh, could cause trouble uh, for them. Now, this fear is not imaginary because most people are aware, as I just read to you, that the IRS has within its tax law that if a church is found to be overtly or overly political, it could lose its tax-exempt status according to that section you all know, 501c3. Now... This all started years ago. In fact, it started in 1954 um, with what was called the Johnson Amendment. The Johnson Amendment. Now, the Johnson Amendment has only been in the IRS tax code since 1954, but it it is amazing how well known it is in our culture. Now, let me give you some history on the Johnson Amendment. It's 1954. It's in Texas. The then Senator Lyndon Baines Johnson was going to be challenged in his Senate seat by another uh, relative newcomer. And apparently Senator Johnson had ticked off two men in Texas, two, two businessmen. And so they formed a nonprofit organization. And they, they literally, out of that 501c3 nonprofit organization, they literally campaigned out of that in order uh, for him to lose his Senate seat, to stop his reelection, LBJ was so mad about all of this that when he went back to the Senate and in the Congress, he introduced, literally, this is the history of it, he introduced at night into a, a tax regulation uh, this particular amendment, which we know as the Johnson Amendment, which stated that no... 501c3 organization could participate in, intervene in, raise money, lobby, endorse candidates, or even oppose candidates. Any speech in this regard, including sermons from the pulpit, 
could result in the loss of tax exemption. Now, I went a little bit further than the actual amendment said because originally, according to his very own staff, LBJ's staff, originally it was never intended to be applied to churches. His own staff has said that. But through the years, what has happened is is that the IRS has used this through various administrations in order to produce fear in pastors and in churches that somehow or another, that if they were to speak anything political out of their pulpit, their tax exemption would be revoked. Now, I want you to listen to me very carefully. Think about this. Prior to 1954, prior to 1954, a pastor could get into the pulpit, he could preach on any subject, he could touch anything he wanted without fear of reprisal. It was only after 1954 that we began to see all of a sudden there were certain subjects or areas that were going to be off limits. All right? So, prior to 1954, you would regularly hear pastors and churches take stands on the issues of like slavery how many of you know that slavery was probably a political hot topic are you right are you hearing me but yet if slavery existed today do you understand that we would be in jeopardy of losing our tax-exempt status if we were to mention that because it could be a political issue child labor civil rights tax policy segregation I could go down all sorts of topics through the years that pulpits have addressed that were incredibly political. And if it were not for the passion of God's people and those pastors, who knows where we would be today? So, so the key was, in, prior to 1954, that, that we could apply the Bible to any area of life in order to help our people understand and know what it is that God would have them to do in this particular area. But our problem is today, now with that amendment, everything's considered political. To where now, if you were to go to Canada, and I have pastor friends right now in Canada who are in lawsuits in Canadian courts because they stood in their pulpits and they defined biblically what marriage was and is, and yet now in Canada it's being declared hate speech, it's become political, and so now they're having to litigate their very messages in the courts, in Canadian courts. Now, folks, let me tell you something. Canada ain't that far away. So there's been, through this, this Johnson Amendment here in America, this, this fear. And the fear has resulted in a self-censoring of pastors. Now, listen to me when I say this. Pastors are just fearful that they could say something that will get the IRS on their case. And the IRS... Personally, I feel, likes us fearing the Johnson Amendment. Every election cycle that comes, you would be amazed at the letters I get from the ACLU. I get these letters from Americans United for the Separation of Church and State. And I get these letters reminding me that if I dare to go into any political topic, they will come get me. All right? They will come get me. And I get this all the time. And if, and if you don't, if you don't obey this, you could lose your tax exempt status. Now, I just want to ask you, what constitutes political? In fact, what constitutes something that's spiritual and political? And if this isn't challenged, perhaps we'll have to quit talking about abortion. Quit talking about gay marriage. Quit talking about debt policy. And more will be restricted from our pulpits. 
And the truth is, the Bible can be used for either liberal or conservative causes. In fact, one lawsuit that I'm aware of was recently aimed at Episcopalian bishop who preached on the biblical pattern of just war. Now, you may disagree with him on this, but he was applying biblical principles to what he felt like was an unjust war from President Bush. The church got a letter stating that they could not enter into this political discussion. Now, again, I may not agree with him, but the fact of the matter is the government has no business sticking its fingers in the pulpits of America. Now, that's a rare, a rare occasion when a liberal church gets a letter. Most of the time it comes to us conservative folk. So what we've done is we've silenced ourselves because we're afraid to go into litigation. Now, it's interesting that after 50 years of the Johnson Amendment, more than 50 years, there is no reported situation to date where a church has lost its tax-exempt status. I know there's been one actually that lost it for a day. Nobody's ever been punished for some sermon that was delivered from a pulpit. Is that not amazing, though, how much fear exists? The question is why? Why, is, why isn't the law either enforced or it's removed? It's because the government gets more mileage out of it by using it as a fear tactic. They know that if, that if this is ever litigated, it will be viewed as unconstitutional. And now pastors who currently are afraid to step into it will know that they had no fear at all. And they'll be loosed now to apply the Bible to their congregations in every situation they may face. Uh, so the ADF, the Alliance Defense Fund, wants to purposefully litigate the Johnson Amendment in court and put this unconstitutional uh, fear tactic to rest. Now, this all started in 2008. I did not become aware of it until last year, but in 2008, 33 pastors agreed that on one Sunday they would preach a sermon that specifically in the light of Scripture addressed a candidate's position on an issue and make whatever conclusion they chose to make. They weren't endorsing per se, but they literally looked at their congregations and asked the question, what would Jesus do with regards to this position and with this candidate? Now, some of those messages were gathered up along with a list of participating churches and pastors, and they were sent to the IRS. They wanted the IRS to review the DVDs and the audios in hopes of getting them to move on somebody. They moved on nobody. So in 2009, 84 pastors decided on one Sunday to do the same thing. They did the very same thing. They gathered up the DVDs or the audios. They sent them to the IRS, wanting them to move in order that they could get this into the courts. The IRS did nothing. In 2010, Legacy Church, me, along with over 100 other pastors now, did the same thing again. It all went to the IRS saying this is what took place. Hoping that somewhere in there they would move to litigate and nothing happened. This year, somewhere between 500 and 1,000 pastors are going to stay. Now, this is, these, are, these are hard numbers. Somewhere between 500 and 1,000 pastors 
including this one this Sunday, will stand up in their pulpits. We will preach from the Scripture and make application to some issue with regards to politics and candidates. Gather them all up. Send it to the IRS. And say, do something, please. The ultimate vision is that by next year at this time, there will be 35,000 pastors that will do this. And I like what Richard Land, who is the head of the Southern Baptist Convention, said this. If we're all willing to go to jail, nobody will go to jail. And so that's what is going on here. Now, listen, when I say this, this will include... Pastors, probably that have a liberal perspective, a different perspective than me, as well as a conservative pastor. Here's the thing. We get to stand up and exercise our citizenship and our First Amendment free speech with regards to the application of Scripture to the issue. And again, I'll just say it seems as if or appears as if mostly conservative churches get threatened. But again, you can interpret that any way you see fit. Uh, and, and when you listen to Rocky, of course, tomorrow, uh, he, you know, he's going to have his say on this deal. And, and just hear me now. I don't agree with everything that comes out of Rocky's mouth. For me, it's just an opportunity to get information out and, and let people know what's going on. I think most of you know that. I mean, Rocky's just, you know, Rocky's Rocky. So, but, but that's what's going on tomorrow. Now, why is this important? People have asked and they said, well, why don't we just stay under the radar? I mean, if you aren't causing a stir, why cause a stir? I mean, just stay under the radar. Why is this important? I'm going to tell you why. Because we apply the Bible to everything, or at least we attempt to make a you know, good faith effort at it. Why is it important? Because, number one, it is a biblical mandate. Listen to what it says here, Matthew 28. Listen to this. Now, I know this is the Great Commission, and you all probably have it memorized, but I want you now to listen to it. Go, therefore, and make disciples of what? Of what? You see, it is God's intent that nations be discipled. You say, really? Yeah. Do you not think our nation needs a good dose of discipling? It, it struggles with what to do in the middle of a crisis and the smartest and brightest people we supposedly have don't know what to do. Why is it? It's because they don't know what God has said on these subjects. If you do it God's way, it always works. Disciple all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Next verse. Listen to this. Teaching them to observe all things that I have commanded you. That means things that even touch the political arena. All things. Teach them. So they will know that God not only moves in our lives as individuals, but He moves in our lives as a nation. Matthew 5.13. Go to this one. It says, You are the salt of the earth. But if the salt loses its flavor, how shall it be seasoned? It is then good for nothing but to be thrown out and trampled underfoot by men. Next verse. You are the light of the world. A city that is set on a hill cannot be hidden. Next verse. Nor do they light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a lampstand, and it gives light to all who are in the house. Next verse. Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. Listen, the church is a light. We are to let our light shine. And our light has to deal with, with what we believe and who God is. 
and how He can bring solutions and answers and redeem things and save things and change things and transform things. And this wasn't meant to be kept under a bushel. This was meant to be announced in Washington, D.C., in Columbia, South Carolina, in Charleston County. There is no limit to where God wants to go. And then finally, in Acts 5, 28 and 29, which, which as you will recall, Peter and John were told to not teach or preach anymore in the name of Jesus. They were told, don't you do this anymore. In fact, they were told if you do it, it was under threat of flogging. It says this, did we not strictly command you not to teach in this name? And look, you fill Jerusalem with your doctrine. Listen, here's the problem. They weren't against them preaching. They were against them preaching in his name. See, see listen to me again. They... People don't mind sermons. They don't, they don't want to hear that Jesus is the only way. They don't mind you having all sorts of gods up on your mantle. But when you say there's only one God, that's when it gets, that's when it gets hairy. Didn't we tell you, you can't do this. Just the, I mean, you've got to be tolerant. You've got to understand there's more than one way. There's many gods, but you're teaching in one name. And look, you've done it in Jerusalem with your doctrine and intend to bring this man's blood on us. They're literally saying, you intend to change this whole place. And listen to what they say. But Peter and the other apostles answered and said, we ought to obey God rather than men. Now listen to me. There's nobody here who's stronger on authority than I am. Believe me, I I appreciate and respect and honor authority. We ought not revile authority. Some Some of the people, even Christians in conservative ranks, have started reviling our president. And I'm telling you, there'll be a judgment that'll come upon their head. Whether you like him or not, he's still the president. Now, there may be many things we don't agree with him on, but that doesn't mean we revile him. He's still an authority now. Listen. So that needs to be done respectfully, but it still needs to be done. And we do not... We do not just flippantly undermine authority. But there are those moments when authority begins to put in place those things that are against this word and against what God would have as precept in the land. Then there comes an appropriate moment when we can stand and say, that's not God. That's what prophets do, you know. That's what prophets do. Got to do it in a right spirit, though. Why is it important? Number two, it violates our rights as American citizens. That's why it's important. We don't lose our freedom of speech just because you came in through those doors. The government cannot prohibit the free exercise of my religion or my faith by regulating my speech. Number three, why is this important? It is because it places government over God. Do we really think that government should regulate the pulpits of America? I mean, I mean you, you, can, you can be a universalist, which I would greatly contend with, but I don't think the government has any business going down to the circular church and telling them what they can and cannot say any more than I believe they can come into this church or the mega church down the road, which was in the paper. I believe that they have every right to stand in their church and declare the word of God and not worry about the government regulating what's going to be said. What committee or subcommittee in Congress are we going to give this one to? The Committee of Sermon Regulation? You think the IRS should be the content advisor? I don't, I don't think government... I think the whole, the whole issue of government even beginning to get in here smacks of the government wanting to be God. 
And then lastly, I just put four down here. It, it deeply undermines the truth. If knowledge of the truth is the only thing the scripture says that will set people free, then if we're, then if we're regulated to keep certain truth back from people, how will they be set free? How can we be faithful to our mandate if we're told that there are certain subjects we cannot apply truth to? You see, it turns the pulpits of America into politically correct lessons that we can just walk out of here that mean nothing and set no one free. This is one of those moments that, that, that the pulpits again need to just come aflame with righteousness. Now, let me tell you what this is not because I think this is important too, what it's not. It is not turning the church into a political action committee. We are not an arm of either party. Let me tell you something. I am as equally irritated with Republicans as I am Democrats. I've got no ax to grind with either one. I will fully admit that I tend to be more conservative in my politics as I am in my theology. But I will also tell you straight up front that, that the Republican Party has no corner on righteousness. I know, I know a lot of Republicans in this state. I can vouch for lack of righteousness. Any given party at any given time can be in power. And we have to be the prophetic voice that looks at power and says, this is God's way. I don't care that you got an R behind your name or a D behind your name or an I behind your name. I don't care. This is God's word on this subject. We, this is the prophetic aspect of the church's calling. There will be times that somebody from either party can arise and we'll find more affinity with them. But the truth of the matter is the Bible is applied to both of them. We are not turning this into a political action committee. Number two, it is not about fundraising for parties or candidates. Now, I'll just say this up front. I know of numerous churches to the left of the political spectrum that have raised more money than you can count for political candidates. But having said that, that's not what this is about. This is about speaking, speaking. The issues that happened this past week with our friends over at Seacoast proves that theologically more conservative speech is being targeted. And that's not right. And then number three, it's not about the church turning political. Politics is not the answer. Truth from Jesus is the answer. But politics reflects our values as a culture. It is one aspect of numerous aspects in our culture. And there is no aspect that can't be delved into by the truth of God's word. It reflects certain values. And we should have a voice at the table of forging those values. As I was writing to Adam Parker uh, this morning and as we were going back and forth, I was able to share with him the fact that I said no civilization is neutral. You've heard me say this before. The issue is never, you know, uh, 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 what political philosophy will rule. That's never the issue. What, what, what philosophy will rule? The issue is which one will rule? Because something always rules. Something will govern. Something or someone. So the question we have to ask ourselves is which one do we want? And we have a stake in this nation because I believe this nation had God's purposes on it. Not because it was a perfect nation, not because it did everything right. We've had a sinful past and we've had the repercussions of our sins as a nation. But the truth of the matter is I still believe God uses nations as imperfect as they are. And we have to understand that we have a voice 
to be able to speak to those things. And pastors have a voice. Does that make pastors perfect in their interpretation? No. But, but they're still the ones that stand behind a pulpit that still speak. You may not agree with everything I say this Sunday. In fact, there may be lots of Sundays you don't agree with me. Which makes me wonder probably why you hang around. But I understand there can be something that comes out of my mouth that you might say, well, I love him and he's a great guy. I'm not sure I'm going to buy that one. Okay, I can live with that. And I can live with the fact that you may not agree with me. But the truth of the matter is, if I'm doing my best to figure out God's will and word in this situation, I'm going to declare it. And I do not want the IRS telling me I can't declare that. Because there are a lot of things we all agree on that need to be declared. All right? So this Sunday... I will be preaching, well, I put teaching down here, but it'll probably be preaching. Out of the scriptures, a message that applies with some scriptural precept to the issues we are facing today that can be distinctly interpreted as a political topic. I'm going, to, I'm going to take a precept out of the Bible. I'm going to lay it down on an issue that we're looking at as a nation today. And we're going to just let it rip potato chip. Because you need to hear how the Bible might apply to certain things. That's, let me just tell you, I'll just, you, most of you know this already, and I'll just give you the heads up. That's part of my call. Part of my call is to help the church become comprehensively Christian again. Now, there are hundreds of pastors that are going to be doing that this Sunday. And as I mentioned um, there are 35,000 pastors, we're believing, that's going to come along by next, next uh, October. If you're a friend of mine on Facebook, you can go. And I, I posted an interview with Jim Garlow, who is uh, the pastor of Skyline Wesleyan in San Diego, California. He's being interviewed. In this particular instance, he's done thousands of interviews. This one happened to be with Glenn Beck. Uh, but don't let that stop you from listening to the interview, whatever you think of Glenn Beck. Uh, but the point being is it's a great synopsis of, of what, is being, uh, what is being applied in our culture in the days we're living in. We, cannot, we, we need to do our part to make sure that we're not marginalized. I don't think, I don't think we're in any anywhere near where Germany was in the late 1930s or 40s. So I don't want to be misunderstood with what I'm about ready to share. I don't, I don't think we're at that place, but, but I can tell you in Nazi Germany, when they, would, when they would load up the Jews and they would take them to concentration camps, uh, there was one instance where they would drive by, the train would go by a church, and all the Christians in the church knew what was happening when that train went by with all of those Jewish prisoners that were going to concentration camps, most of whom would have been killed. And it was said that when the train would go by and, and, and conviction would come upon the congregation because they knew what was going on, the pastors would not speak. Bonhoeffer was one of the few. There were only a few in that time period that would speak. It cost him his life. But as the train would go by, they would instantly stand up and start singing a hymn. And if the train got louder, they'd just sing louder. And the church just stood and sang while the nation was being driven into the ditch. Sorry, folks. I can't do it. I just, I can't. 
I mean, we'll sing, but when the singing's over, you're going to hear it. And I'm going to do my best, whatever the issue is, I'm going to do my best to make sure that, uh, that we as a people know what God's word is on this. So that's what's going on Sunday, all right? So uh, I hope you come and, and be a part. And hopefully the same amens you give me tonight, you'll give me on Sunday, all right? Well, let's pray, all right? And I'm going to cut you loose then. Let's pray for all these, these men and their women as well that will be standing up and sharing and teaching. Let's pray for them tonight. Can I just tell you, we're, I, I don't lay the blame at any one person's doorstep. We have, been, we have been as a nation probably for the last 40 years been circling in a downward spiral. And I believe we have finally come to the place where something dramatic and, and godly and revivalistic doesn't happen in the next five years, maybe ten years. I don't know that we'll ever recognize our nation anymore. So we need, we need a move of his spirit across the land. I believe this with all my heart. You can't, you can't legislate righteousness. I believe that. But righteousness still must come. And it will only come when hearts are transformed. So we need to pray. We need to pray that the power of God's word would be ignited. And that hearts would be transformed. And that people would yearn for the ways of God. And I believe God in turn will bless. That's why it said, if my people which are called by my name, would humble themselves and pray and seek my face, this is the Lord speaking, and turn from their wicked ways. Then, he says, will I hear from heaven, forgive their sin, and heal their land. See, I'll tell you one more time. This isn't going to start. Washington, D.C. has its problems, and Columbia, South Carolina, it's got problems. But the first problem we got to fix is the one that's in our own camp. And that means we got to pray and we got to believe and we got to stand with truth. 